Welcome to the Black Sparrow Media Internet Broadcast Network. Welcome, you have tuned into episode number 194 of Linux in the Ham Shack. I'm your host, Russ, K5TUX. Sitting across from me, looking perplexed at her phone, is Cheryl, <laughs> W5MOO. Good evening, everyone. And from I'm not quite in Virginia yet, Big Sky Country, Montana, Yeah, it's Bill, <laughs> NE4RD. Good evening, everyone. And that's West Virginia, not Virginia. I got to remember. Yes, yes. West by God, Virginia. (laughs) Of course. All right. (laughs) Make no mistake. (laughs) Usually when I'm driving through Virginia and West Virginia, I make no mistake. Yeah. Yeah, there's a movie about a mistake. (laughs) (laughs) And I think we all know what that one is. Ask Ned Beatty. All right. So we'll uh, jump right in here. We'll talk about some amateur radio topics for segment one tonight. And the first one here that I've got is a story from the ARRL. It's about new band plan being proposed for 630-meter operation. Uh, The coordinator for that band, Fritz Rob, W1FR, and I keep wanting to to call him Broccoli because of Broccoli. But anyway, uh, has proposed an informal band plan for the pending 472 to 479 kilohertz band. On March 28th, on March 28th, the FCC adopted rules that will allow secondary amateur radio access to the 630-meter band with minor conditions. One of these involves a requirement to notify the Utilities Telecom Council of proposed amateur radio operation on either new band. The FCC says the Office of Management and Budget must first approve information collection requirements. Procedures to meet the requirements are said to be still under development by UTC. Rob, otherwise known as Broccoli, and LF slash VLF enthusiast John Langridge, KB5NJD, prepared the 630-meter band plan based upon established patterns separating different modes of operation and harmonizing U.S. amateur operations with those in Europe, unquote. There are now more than 100 DXCC entities that have permission to operate on 630 meters. So we mentioned West Virginia earlier, and Bill's going to tell us a little more about West Virginia, where he's going to be for a couple yeah, of weeks. I'll be down so. the Greenbrier River. No, I have no idea <laughs> what river actually cuts through there. But yes, I am going to West Virginia as of, well, by the time this podcast comes out, I will be there. So uh, I'm going to the National Scout Jamboree. This is the ultimate high adventure base for scouting. It happens every four years. And this will be the second time it's at the new location at the Summit Bechtel Reserve in West Virginia. And uh, I'm I'm heading there with the K2BSA group. And we're setting up uh, a big uh, demonstration station of uh, 4HF setups, um, a satellite UHF VHF setup, and I believe we have one loading station that will be something other <laughs> like uh, echo link and possibly repeater or possibly switched on to hf depending upon the activity we're expecting uh, about four thousand scouts to come through that uh, or at least we're hoping that that's good that's going to be the number typically the jamboree brings about thirty-five thousand to forty thousand scouts and um and we're hoping to at least grab 10 percent of them through the demonstration area and also while we're there we're going to be doing uh, the radio merit badges and we hope to get about 400 scouts through the radio merit badge program um we have uh adrdf uh amateur radio direction finding some fox hunting going on and we hope to have about 105 teams or so pass through that event as well also there we're going to be doing uh which leads to the next topic but we'll get to that eventually we're we're going to be doing a contact with the uh international space station and through the aeris program and uh, we're going to do a balloon launch with APRS. And well, gee, what else? Uh, 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 summits on the air activation. And we may do that more than once. So there is a summit, uh, labeled summit there at the uh, summit, which makes sense, right? Summit, summit. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, a lot of activity. We have about uh, 40, 42 uh, people on our particular group for the K2BSA. 
I'm going to be doing mainly uh, social media outreach for the K2BSA, putting uh, everything we have that we're doing online, keeping the uh, frequencies listed on our website. It's going to be, uh, you can find that website at uh, www.k2bsa.net slash jamboree-live. And that's where we'll be keeping, uh, hopefully, all the active frequencies and, and stuff like that for the uh, stations themselves. And uh, I, I, I'm preempting this, but uh, we're going to announce it tomorrow. We'll also be doing a little live streaming on the uh, W5KUB YouTube channel. Uh, in preparation of the event or... During the event. Oh, during the event, next week. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, the event runs from uh, um, the Scouts start showing up July 19th, and they'll be there for, I believe, it's seven days straight. So that brings us to 26th, 27th, something like that. Then we're breaking down, and we're out of there on the 28th. So um, I'll be there uh, Saturday, the 15th, and we'll be getting all the stations set up between the 15th, 16th. We hope to do some on-air testing on the 16th. Hopefully, <laughs> if everything comes together, um, yeah, we have uh, you know great sponsors. I know I mentioned them in the past. We have you know ICOM Americas providing all of the uh, all of the rigs. We have some antennas from uh, DX Engineering and uh, MFJ is providing uh, MFJ Enterprises is providing uh, I believe a couple of dipoles and uh, maybe it's headsets and stuff. I'd have to look at the list. I should have been more prepared, but. <laughs> Um, yeah, we're really looking forward to the event and, uh, I got the coolest job ever cause I get to just document it all and, and put it out there. So, uh, I'm pretty excited and getting my, uh, backpack this week and we'll be hitting the airport on Friday. So you're going to be taking video and stuff to put on YouTube so we can see like the balloon launches and everything. Oh yeah. Yeah. We'll have, uh, probably mo- a lot of the stuff can be live, live streamed the entire, uh, the entire uh, area there is totally blanketed in Wi-Fi and, uh, of course, LTE. Um, so, yeah, connectivity is not going to be a problem. Uh, I'm just, uh, we'll see how much bandwidth I have to limit what I can do. Worst case, I'll be pushing stuff out at nights um, and uh, putting you know video gets, videos together from the day and stuff like that if I hadn't had time to get something out live. So we're going to kind of play it by ear once I get there because I've never been to the event before and i realize it gets kind of crazy so we're going to kind of see and and uh kind of feel out what's going to happen but uh for the most part you'll be able to find us on the website like i said uh our twitter feed at k2bsa underscore scouting and uh our facebook page k2bsa so minimally you'll see us there and uh intermittently on the probably uh, Tom's channel, the W5KUB channel. I think you only became a host of this program so you could plug the BSA. <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically. <laughs> well, if you listen around, I've actually, uh, it's bad Jim's scheduled to be on pretty much everything except for Ham Nation. I just, I didn't coordinate a time with them, but, uh, uh, you know, I've been plugging this on Amateur Radio Newsline forever now. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's all over the place. I mean, this is, this is pretty fun stuff. I mean, uh, I like working with the uh, the kids in the scouting program. They really want to be there, and they uh, really dig amateur radio because they're really you know into the the hobbyist side of things. All right, very good. Well, we'll look for all of that information coming out of West Virginia uh, starting in about a week. So sounds yes. like a lot of fun. All right, and you did mention Eris, and it looks like that their twentieth anniversary is rolling around and they're going to have a slow scan tv event starting on july 20th and continuing for two days um transmissions are scheduled to get underway at 2125 utc and they're going to feature 12 images from past and present eris activities the sstv signal should be available nearly anywhere on the globe at some point during the event and the event plans to use a computer on the iss russian segment which stores images that are then transmitted to Earth using the onboard Kenwood TM-D710 transceiver. Signals will be transmitted on 145.8 megahertz using FM, and the SSTV mode is expected to be FD or I'm sorry, PD120 with PD180 as a possible secondary option. And as another story that came out of the AWRL, you can uh, check out the link that'll be in the show notes if you want to get you know more details and more information from Eris. Uh, that should be interesting, getting a slow scan off the uh, space station. Yeah, they've had it running before, and I've seen some decodes from it. I, I haven't actually done that because I just don't have the right gear. <laughs> well, I have the gear. I just don't have it plugged in. 
<laughs> yeah, I don't have the right gear for that either. I've done some slow scan, but it was over HF. And it's actually kind of fun to do slow scan once you kind of get the yeah. hang of it. It's it's kind of a weird mode to, to get into. It's a little different than doing vo- uh, voice. But uh, once you do it and you actually start receiving some signals and actually see you know video coming from other hams, it's, it's kind of a cool mode. But it does have a little bit of a learning curve and even once you know it you still gotta kind of futz around with stuff to get it to work. yeah all right so that is all we've got for amateur radio topics for tonight so we're going to move on to some open source stuff and the first one is one i found earlier today the u.s is falling behind in the supercomputer race but no matter where a supercomputer is running one thing remains true it's running linux the title of this article was actually linux owns supercomputing in the latest top 500 supercomputer competition which was revealed in june of this year 498 out of 500 supercomputers were running linux and the other two were running unix uh, specifically aix uh, when the first top 500 supercomputer list was compiled in 1993 linux was barely more than merely more than a toy and hadn't adopted Tux as its mascot yet. Starting in 1998, when it first appeared on the top 500, Linux quickly dominated supercomputing. By 2004, Linux had taken over the lead for good. With Linux, engineering teams can easily modify and optimize Linux to the one-off groundbreaking designs that characterize the modern supercomputer. Equally as important, licensing self-supported Linux distributions is the same whether you're using it on 20 nodes or 20 million nodes. Supercomputing projects have access to free developer resources to keep costs on par with or below other operating systems. Supercomputing, like all computing outside of the Windows-powered desktop, continues to be dominated by Linux. Something we already knew, but it's kind of nice to see like real validation. I mean, mean, literally 99.6% of the supercomputing market is run by Linux. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. It's pretty pretty. I was stellar. hoping there'd be a list in here. I don't see the list. Where's the list? The list of what? The actual list itself. The list of oh, supercomputers? Top500.org. Okay, that makes sense. <laughs> well, I still don't see the dang list. Dang it. That's a couple of dangs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> dang list. Dang it. Dang it. Oh, list. Here we go. November 2016. I just want to see where my brother-in-law's is. He has a supercomputer? Uh, he works for Corning. All righty then. And they're not listed, so they must be running under a separate company. But uh, yeah, he's a HPC guy. All righty then. Well, it's just not in top 10, huh? Yeah, basically, other than the Windows desktop, Linux has control of everything the embedded server market, the embedded application market, supercomputer market, infotainment market, portable kiosk market. Basically, everything runs Linux, except for damn desktops. Yeah, they they do have a Windows supercomputer. It's just still booting up. Very nice. <laughs> I thought you'd like that. Yeah, it was very good. I don't know if you came Thank up you. with that or not. <laughs> Bada bing. No, I, I did. I was thinking about it earlier. I was waiting for a moment to slide it in. <laughs> very good. They they pushed the power button in 2014. It'll come on. Yeah. Really. <laughs> It'll be online by you know, Windows 20. Right. 20. <laughs> Windows 20. Oh. Speaking of Microsoft, yeah, let's Microsoft talk about open that. sources... Uh, <laughs> Visual Studio Code extension for Arduino. You know, everybody likes the little Arduino board. I think I have two of them here. <laughs> haven't haven't actually used this one, but yet. But uh, in early July, uh, Microsoft released yet another open source tool for Visual Studio Code uh, called Extension for Arduino. This MIT licensed code should greatly help developers that are leveraging Arduino hardware for the Internet of Things related projects and more. Uh, ZD Zhang, product developer for Microsoft, says the design leverages the official Arduino IDE so that our Arduino extension can be almost fully compatible and consistent with the Arduino IDE, embracing the Arduino developer community. On top of it, we added the most sought-after features such as IntelliSense autocode completion and on-device debugging for supported boards. I caught this article not only because we were trying to fill stuff for the show today, <laughs> but uh, also I've been using uh, Visual Studio Code uh, quite often now, and uh, I'm, I'm really starting to like it as an editor in general. A couple different projects in it right now. Uh, I have a .NET Core program that I was uh, working on, and then I just recently worked on a, um, a conversion for a PHP application that, uh, that I was handed at work. And it works really, really well. Uh, much, much, much better than I thought I would get used to. So, um, and the nice part is it runs everywhere. I believe it runs uh, via Electron. So it's, uh, 
usable on pretty much everything. I got installed just the same way over here on my Linux boxes. I do my my Windows box, and uh, it'll install on Mac because I have it on the the Mac over in the other room. So yeah, Visual Studio Code not not a bad product. Check it out. Yeah, Microsoft doesn't get everything wrong, just most everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess they're laying off a whole mess of people too. I think yeah, it was I saw mo- that. mostly European salespeople, I think, but I guess uh, their sales force is getting uh, chopped quite considerably. Well, you know, they're after they closed down the mobile division or, you know, kind of hid the fact they closed down the mobile division. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they had to do something with all these people that were probably still selling, you know, this Windows on all devices uh, mentality. Right. Oh, well, maybe they'll catch up. Well, they seem to be catching up a little bit because they are contributing more and more to the open source world. So, you know. Yeah, I think one of the, uh, you know, points they put on this article was the fact that Microsoft is one of the hugest contributors to open source. (laughs) You know, uh, maybe not necessarily money, but people. If you look at all the commits on uh, GitHub and stuff like that, it's uh, an an amazing number. I believe we talked about that on a show not too long ago either. Maybe like, uh, it's probably like five or six shows back. And we talked about who's who's actually participating in open source from the uh, commercial side. And yeah, Microsoft is 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 top dog there, I believe. Yeah, I remember talking about that. And actually, I just took a quick glance at the chat room and I saw that in, from the last story, uh, N7JCT was asking where the Raspberry Pi 3 fit on the list of supercomputers, <laughs> um, which is funny. But I actually saw an article today that I was going to mention and didn't. Uh, I cut it from the show, but they were talking about software and a tutorial guide for setting up an eight-node Pi cluster, which apparently is pretty darn robust. And I don't remember where I saw that, but I can look it up again and put it in the show notes. I've seen a few articles on on doing Pi clusters, and it's it's pretty slick, especially if you want to kind of build a cluster rather cheap. You know, um, it definitely gives you experience with with doing that and setting up jobs and spawning the jobs out to the various nodes. So it's definitely good if you want to learn about um, you know, putting together a supercomputer, it's it's really cool to do it at such a small scale and then have it be useful. Yeah, this particular one also mentioned the Unicorn Pie Hat, which apparently does like uh, LED color scheme generation for the processing. So you can actually sort of, it's like a visualizer for the actual CPU use. Oh, cool. And you can put the hat on each of the clusters so you can see... I guess kind of get like a heat map or something or some sort of visual representation of the data crunching that's going on. So that was kind of neat. We yeah, all like love running H top to LEDs or something. Yeah, I did. I didn't get down into the specifics, but kind of neat stuff. So moving on from Linux supercomputing, we're going to talk about a new survey that reveals some interesting stuff about how people use Linux in their daily lives. Yes, we're going to talk about how the Linux laptop survey reveals the most popular Linux machines. And this survey, conducted by Pharonix, received more than 30,000 responses in a time span of two weeks, yielding a considerable samples. When buying a new laptop, the most important factor cited was build quality, which was 30.7%, followed by performance, which was 25.2%. A flashy laptop made with premium materials rated more tempting than one having all the goodies in the hood. That's apparently because most of the users do casual daily tasks and don't need a power beast just to browse the web. The primary task of most respondents, which was 82.5%, web browsing was followed by software development, which was 73.1%, office work, which was 47.7%, and multimedia, which is 45.2%. Even now, gaming isn't part of the lives of most Linuxers, which maxes out at 21.1%. And the most popular distribution is Ubuntu. The first distro most people adopt when they switch to Linux at 38.9%. The most popular brand of laptop? Linus Torvalds might be a fan of the Dell XPS Dev Edition, but the Linux people's choice for a laptop brand is Lenovo at 39.6%. Second place is Dell at 27.8%, and third, Asus at 16%. uh, Excuse me. System76, which is focused only on Linux laptops, finds its finds its place well down the list at 2.1%. And information came from... Yep, I just picked this one up earlier, and I had never seen a a reference to Fosbytes before, but I thought it was kind of interesting, some of the statistics here. And there are lots and lots and lots of other statistics that are in this article. So it's a pretty interesting read, but I didn't want to go down 
you know, all the things. But some of the things that stood out were the fact that Ubuntu is the most popular distribution. I think we could have guessed that one. But Lenovo being the top laptop, I guess people still yeah. really like IBM. It's as close as you can get to a reference Intel machine. So that's why. I mean, that's that's why I run a Lenovo. <laughs> it's not a new one. You know, it's an X220, but uh, you can do pretty much anything on this. You can even probably uh, set it up as a Hackintosh because of the generic hardware. Yep, and apparently that makes it very desirable among the Linux set. And I thought it very interesting, that last statistic there about System76 and their market share, or at least their, not market share, but at least their uh, take rate during the, you know, people responding to the survey was, un, you know, just over 2% of the market. So apparently commodity hardware is still where it's at. Well, just think about it. Go on eBay and <laughs> search for Lenovo laptops. <laughs> yeah. There's a, a zillion of them out there. Right. I mean, I got my laptop for about $200, and I think I spent more on the SSD for it. <laughs> <laughs> and it screams, absolutely screams. Well, we have Asus running Linux Mint, and they do so. They do really well. And that those were purchased right after the, the netbook boom, when they actually came with things like Xandros and stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, the ones that we bought actually came with Windows, but um, that they, they were right. It was right after that big Linux netbook boom that we got ours. So, yeah. Yep. And those those had nice hardware, too. And if you get over the small keyboard size, which is kind of a pain in the ass for me with my fat, my literal fat fingers, um, <laughs> you know, it works out well. But um, they they are perfect for Hamvention and stuff where we set up and they, they have a nice small footprint and they run Linux beautifully. Yeah. Yeah, those were great. Those are great little devices. Yeah, the nice part about the Lenovo's, too, are that people really like the keyboards on them. And they have a full-size keyboard, and they type very well. Yeah, I think the Asus Netbook is, or what we have are the triple PCs, and of course everyone recognizes that name. But I, I want to say they're probably as close as you can get to a full-size PC and still fit it in the hardware, you know, form yeah. factor. I think they're, what, 75% or 80% scale or something like something that. They're, like that. They're pretty yeah. close. But. Yeah. I mean, if I just look at my desk here, I have a Lenovo, I have an Asus, and I have a Dell. And they all boot Linux beautifully. So, yeah. I mean, I can see why they're on the list. I mean, they're just <laughs> good, reliable machines. They try not to get too fancy with the hardware. And uh, it makes it makes it an easy transition into, you know, an Ubuntu or, you know, uh, Arch or any of those other distributions you care to try. Right. If I look around our house, pretty much every machine is Dell. Dell, yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, Dell, there's so much hardware out there. I mean, yeah, I have two servers behind me. They're both Dell, so. I know there are a lot of people who really badmouth Dell and say they're made like total crap and stuff like that, but. I happen to be one of the lucky ones. We have never, yeah. ever We've had any really issues. We really never had any issues with Dell, and I, I sold my company on Dell, and, every, you know, our entire infrastructure is Dell, so... And you've not had yeah. any problems with And, them, yeah, right? we just don't have problems with machines. I, I, I feel sorry for those people that have issues with Dells. They got whatever the bad run was. But, uh, you know, they have done some random stuff once in a while with uh, new machines trying to really get a really cheap price point. And I have to say, we have run into a few lemons, um, but we just nixed those SKUs on our side and we wouldn't order anymore. Primarily, we saw that because uh, uh, I do work also for a laboratory, uh, the instrument vendors will send a machine kind of pre-configured with software. And generally, those are those are Dells as well, but they're normally, you know, Dell labeled. I don't think they're actually Dell on the <laughs> On the inside, I mean, one of them I couldn't even find a replacement power supply for. It was just that obscure. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I was like, yeah, we're just getting rid of those. And I have a, I had bought a, about 30 really small form factor desktops. And uh, yeah, those things are great. They just run so well. They're, uh, they have, you know, tiny form factor and uh, you can just dump them in and they work. And they run Linux great too. <laughs> so, yep. although the one here is running a uh, uh, Windows Server to uh, 2016, but that's because it's for work. <laughs> <laughs> On machines I don't care about, I'll use like an Inspiron because that's the real low end stuff. Yeah. Uh, although you know they're they're actually packing some pretty high powered you know hardware into those Inspiron cases, but. From a work perspective, as long as you stick with like either an Optiplex, a or a, like an XPS uh, for workstation use and a PowerEdge for you know for server use, I mean they're built solid. So yeah, I think my 
I'm just trying to lift up this huge Dell laptop I have. It's a uh, Dell Precision. So this is yeah. the uh, workstation replacement model. Right. Precisions are and, on the high end too. They're like right below yeah. the XPS. So integrated graphics and everything else, or you know, yeah, separate gra- discrete graphics. Sorry. Yep, they put out some good stuff, and there is still a part of Dell that will sell you Linux install Linux pre-installed hardware. It's hard to find, but it's still out there. So yeah, I think don't they sell the developer of edition that is uh, Ubuntu? Yes. Or did they? Yeah, okay, we mentioned yeah. that earlier that that was kind of Linus Torvald's favorite thing. And uh, yeah, that's a nice little laptop. I've seen a couple of those, and I, I would like to have one, but it's a, a little out of my budget. <laughs> yeah, as a, a lot of stuff for me as well. So anyway, let's did, stop. Did I mention I spent $200 on my laptop. <laughs> y- yes, I believe you did. <laughs> yeah. I'm, All right. That's so it. we'll stop plugging Dell and Lenovo at this point, <laughs> and we'll uh, dive into Linux in the Ham Shack. And guess what? Bill's been rooting around in the GitHub dumpster again. So what have yes. you come up with? Yes. <laughs> I love diving into GitHub. It's just a plethora <laughs> of good stuff. And uh, I, I didn't find many new things that I hadn't seen already, but uh, I did find a few that I, I thought uh, I would mention tonight. I uh, found this project called Laura Ham. The project consists of a ham radio protocols and Arduino examples for Laura on 70 centimeter. The uh, code, the protocols and the hardware have been intentionally kept simple for easy impl- uh, experimentation in the interest of getting folks to build things and put their projects on the air. The, uh, this project has only recently been made public, but please, jo- please join us in Octothorpe Loraham on Freenode if you would like to play along. And uh, on the uh, GitHub, they have, of course, uh, renders of the, the hardware and all the software. I think they had hardware renders, didn't they? Uh, maybe in the wiki or something. Yeah, okay. The wiki has the, the hardware designs and, and stuff like that. So, yeah, check it out. I'd never heard of uh, Laura before, but uh, um, it looks interesting. And if you're an Arduino person and like to experiment, this is uh, something interesting uh, on GitHub. Uh, another one I got here, another Arduino, is uh, as a popular project, a ham radio VFO with uh, Arduino and uh, AD8950. This is a VFO for use with old ham radio transceivers and with QRPs. <laughs> I'm, I'm assuming that's uh, experimental low-powered gear. Uh, and I'm intending to use this on a... Ariana QRP triple band project that I posted the PCB here. So on this one, we have the uh, PCB and the software to uh, to create the VFO. So um, check that project out if you're uh, interested in doing a VFO. CQR forks. Okay, so, uh, okay to CQR has forked his repo to have a dev build copy for the author. It's because he operates, uh, you know, his own software, obviously. And CQR log is, you know, my personal favorite logging application. He has some changes that he's been putting in here to uh, keep up with WSJTX. He's added modes uh, for logging for FT8 and JT4. So if uh, you're not using CQR log for your typical amateur radio station monitoring and logging, uh, this is one that I, I personally use it, and I appreciate the active development and integration with uh, FL Digi and WSJTX. It's pretty uh, pretty seamless. I know on some of the Windows apps, like uh, DX Keeper and stuff like that, you have to run some middleware to get WSJTX to log in, uh, log your contacts and stuff like that. And there's like a really crummy bridge for FL Digi. Because nobody uses uh, Win Warbler, <laughs> at least <laughs> I haven't been able to figure that one out uh, to operate effectively. But I really like the integration with CQR Log. It has the ability to run both these apps in remote mode, where you can either control the frequency from CQR Log or from the uh, the external application, and of course, it allows the logging to go back and forth, which makes it mighty convenient for uh, for doing that. So. Uh, so check out his uh, GitHub repo, and of course, uh, you, you can always just download the latest deb from uh, CQR log, CQR.org, I believe, right? Okay, uh, yeah, CQRlog.org. And Bill emerges from <laughs> the, the GitHub, GitHub dumpster. dumpster. <laughs> <laughs> that, no offense, I love GitHub. <laughs> no, we love GitHub, too, and that's actually going to be a segment, I think, maybe later yeah, on. Yeah, there's so much good stuff in there, in there. Bill live from the, yeah as you're saying what titled from the github dumpster yeah Bill live from the github dumpster <laughs> <laughs> let's see what's been thrown out in the back of the project lot today 
Yeah, yeah. I'll have All to right. put on a voice effect or something for that. <laughs> I'm sure. Let's see. We've got to get, like, uh, somebody who actually works for GitHub <laughs> to record, like, a little intro or something. That'd be great. Yeah. Okay, so anyway, I'm going to move on. We've been talking a little bit about crossover Linux in the past couple of episodes, and in fact, in this episode. So uh, I just wanted to give a quick little idea of how crossover Linux works. Basically, it's an overlay on top of Wine, which is Wine is not an emulator. It's a commercial software package, but I believe it's open source. You know, I didn't even bother to look at that in all the research. I <laughs> Let me look at the license. I think they have a hodgepodge uh, proprietary license. That includes software that is MIT licensed and some GNU lesser GPL licensed stuff. Yeah, obviously they they've brought a lot of resources from a lot of places, so there are going to be differing licenses. And of course, the software you run on it will be licensed, however it's licensed. But anyway, the software is not for free. You have to pay for it. You can, I believe, that it starts out at like forty nine ninety five. But if you if you futz around a little bit on the website, you can find a link to a download where you don't get paid support, and that actually knocks the price down to thirty nine ninety five, and that's a one time fee, so it's pretty inexpensive. And what it does is it makes Wine really really usable. It incorporates Wine tricks and a bunch of other stuff. And one thing that also does that's really nice is it keeps a database of software that people have tried under it. It gives a user rating, and it also um, has Windows dependencies. You can do a couple of things with it. One, you can just, if you install Crossover Linux, um, you can get it as a dev package or as an RPM. It will run, you know, or install on any of those distributions based on RPM and dev. And once you've done that, it actually creates an association with .exe and .msi files so that you can just double-click those and it will it will open them in Crossover Linux. Or you can actually go into Crossover Linux and look for the application you're trying to run. There's a big database of them. And if it's an application that Crossover Linux already knows about, it can do things like download and install Windows-based dependencies for that application to make sure it'll run better. It also gives you a basic idea of whether the application you're trying to run will run, will run with problems, or just plain won't. So uh, that that is nice in itself. And the other concept that is important to Crossover Linux is the idea of a bottle. And what that is is it's a self-contained Windows environment. You can think of it as a virtual machine. And it likes to install every application in its own bottle. But you don't have to do that. You can create a bottle, like a Windows XP bottle or a Windows 7 bottle or a Windows 2000 bottle for every individual application to keep everything nice and separated if you want to do that. All the resources will be separated within Crossover. And it divides all of that stuff up in your home directory under a, a hidden directory called .cxoffice. Under there, you can find uh, the directory structure, which points to all the bottles and everything. And that's how you also connect your file systems into the Windows environment and also your input-output uh, input devices like your COM ports. You just create sim links with the proper names inside of the bottles and link them to the Linux devices on your system uh, to get access uh, within the, the Windows environment, the Windows emulation environment. So... It's pretty straightforward. There's a lot of tutorial help out there. And of course, if you pay the extra 10 bucks when you download Code Weavers, you actually get paid support through them. So it's a, it's a pretty neat project. It's inexpensive and it works really well. It's uh, tried and tested. The Wine project has been around forever and they just made it 10 times better. So what I've been doing lately is taking some of these applications that we talked to folks at like Hamvention about or mentioned on the program that are Windows only or are sort of in a transition period between being Windows only and cross-platform, and I want to look and see how they perform under Crossover Office. So I've tried a couple of things for this week. Uh, the first one is an application called MMTTY. Uh, this is a digital mode application along the lines of FL Digi. It's written by Juliet Echo 3 Hotel Hotel Tango, and I don't remember when it was started, but it's... Uh, quite a ways along now and the documentation for this application says that it runs well under wine so i thought well let's give it a try and under crossover office it does run very well now 
I didn't find the user interface particularly intuitive, but one thing I did notice is that the Pulse Audio driver was transferred automatically inside the MMTTY bottle. So I already had access to my sound card uh, within the Windows application. It worked perfectly, and I also had access to my COM port, so I could set up PTT and all that. Uh, and it had settings within the application for, you know, the major radios, Elecraft and Icom, Yezu, Kenwood, so on and so forth, Alenco. Uh, uh, so I have to say that uh, I, I didn't find the application. <coughs> I have to say I didn't find the application particularly intuitive, so I wasn't real fond of it. It's not quite as easy to use as FL Digi, but it does actually work perfectly in the crossover environment. And when you're running it under crossover, of course, it runs just as a normal window in your desktop environment, so you can't even tell it's a Windows application. So for that one, I'd say you can absolutely use it. If you're a big fan of MMTTY, works great under crossover. You really use that in coordination with uh, your third item on the list uh, to do the digital modes because uh, it has direct integration with uh, N1MM to do uh, RIDI contests and stuff like that. Most people use MMTY as the... Uh, the RIDI decode engine and everything else for doing contests. Which probably makes perfect sense, and I didn't make the connection, and I didn't try them in tandem, so I'm probably losing a little bit there. Yeah, I put them both in the same bottle. (laughs) Okay, and I actually did the same thing, but not because I wanted to, but only because I already had the N1MM bottle there, and I just said, okay, I'll just throw it in there. (laughs) So Yeah, uh, that's a perfect perfect complement to each other and if you ran a ready contest you would you would understand i mean it's it it works perfectly it's it's a great application to use and it's it's very intuitive when doing ready stuff all right well fantastic that's a little bit i didn't realize but i will try and and use them in tandem to see how well they work but i i'm giving it a readiness score of 4.5 because it really works perfectly i just didn't like it per se so <laughs> oh you would turn that into a five as soon as you uh do the NAQP uh, RIDI uh, contest this fall. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. I'll, I'll mark that down, and I'll make a note of it so I can update it. Yeah. Well, let me just skip down to the N1MM logger. When I tried to run it, I ran it standalone, of course, in its own bottle. Did I mention the license on the other one? I guess I didn't. Uh, it's freeware. MMTTY is freeware, but it's closed source. Um, the license basically says it's free to share and distribute as long as you attribute you know, to the author, uh, but there's no open source to it. Uh, the license on N1MM, however, is freeware. It says it's free to copy, distribute, and modify. However, it is closed source, which I was wondering about the idea of, you know, being freely able to modify the source, but it's closed source. And there's information on the website about you can have access to the source code. You basically just have to ask them for it. And I think they want you to be more or less a, like, dedicated developer for the software. You can't just say, I want the software, you know, I want the source code, and they'll give it to you. But you can get it, you know, under certain circumstances. So I guess I'm going to still call that closed source. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I'll try. I'll, I'll see if I can get a copy. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll document the process, see right. if it's uh, worth it. That's cool. I like that. You know, license aside, the software actually runs really well. The only problem I had with it is I could, I was having a difficult time getting it to integrate with my comp uh, for like reading rig data so I could get like the frequency and everything automatically loaded into the logger. But as far as the, the logger itself, as far as its functionality, it worked fine. And I may just have to like tweak it a little bit to uh, to get it to read my rig data and stuff like that. Um, it tried. It just couldn't do it for some reason. And I know I was in the same bottle as MMTTY and MMTTY could. So I'm not really sure where the, the disconnect was there. But other yeah, there's than some uh, oddities with that one with the uh, DTR, CTR settings. Yeah, I made sure the DTR was enabled because that always has to be enabled when I want to do PTT, like on anything with my particular rig. Yeah. Um, so, so I made sure that was set, but it still, it wasn't even reading data. It had nothing to do with actually doing actual PTT. Um, so not sure where the problem lay there. Could just be with me. But other than that, I didn't have any problems with it. Owing to the fact that I'm not completely sure if it's working 100%, I gave it a 3.8, which means, yeah, you can use it, and yeah, it probably works fine. It just didn't work fine for me. Uh, I'll update as necessary if I can actually get it to work, or maybe there's some stupid thing I forgot. That is all I've got for Linux in the Ham Shack. We can uh, take a quick check in the chat room, see if anyone has uh, something they're talking about. 
N7JCT says, if a program is worthwhile, it will run in Linux or Unix, even if it's closed source. There's some truth to that. There's some truth to that. There are some really, really good Windows-only applications. <laughs> oh, oh, and I actually skipped something, didn't I? I skipped Ham Radio Deluxe. Yeah, HRD. <laughs> yeah, and I don't want to skip Ham Radio Deluxe because uh, I started digging around on their website uh, because I was looking for licensing information. I couldn't actually find licensing information. I found a link to their EULA. And I was like, oh, well, there, there's the information right there. I clicked on it. It said, you must register to see this information. <laughs> no, I'm not going to register just to see your EULA. I mean, come on, you, you should be publishing your EULA. And the reason, you know, the only reason I can think that they're not putting their EULA out there is they really don't want people to actually see it. So, yeah, well, they were just, you know, what, a year ago, they just ran into all that trouble with their uh, user license. So the, they went into editing on it and probably have uh, since then hit it. Apparently so. So what I did find was in the FAQ, there's a reference to a perpetual license that is associated with the original purchaser's call sign. Uh, and the question that elicited that answer was, can I transfer my license? So the answer to the question is, no, you can't transfer your license. And the wording of that negation actually suggests that if someone buys the software and changes their call sign, they are no longer licensed to use HRD. So the conclusion I came to, again, is that HRD is DOA. If there was any doubt, there is no longer any doubt. So my LHS readiness score for Ham Radio Deluxe is zero. It's a big fat zero. Don't use it. <laughs> <laughs> wah, wah, wah. Right. All right. So now we look at the chat room and let's see what we got here. Uh, I wonder how Windows 10 would rate with an LHS rating. That's that's interesting. How would Windows 10? It wouldn't be zero. I can tell no. you that. It's not a zero. As far as Windows 7, Windows 7 I really liked and it runs VirtualBox really well. I'd probably give Windows 7 like a 4 plus. But anyway. With installation, access to software. Yeah, there's there's a lot of opportunity there. And Windows 10 isn't really any different when it comes to that. And I know there have been threads of disenchanted people. But uh, yeah, there's virtually no difference uh, between the two, right. 7 and 10. So when it comes to running apps. So Don says, so Windows 10 is better than HRD. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Anything is better than HRD. HRD. Yeah. If yep. you're using Windows, I would I would suggest uh, DX Keeper for logging. <laughs> <laughs> it's free. <laughs> and it works pretty well. All right, very good. So with that, we get to move on to the music for tonight. And the music I have picked is from a melodic metal group called Falling Blind, and this is off an album that came out in 2010 called Comets. The song is Cupid Kills. It runs just short of four minutes and a half. I got it off of Jamendo, and this one's actually kind of one of those, you know, sort of heavy metal, kind of hard rock, kind of like a five-finger death punch kind of music. So it'll definitely get your uh, adrenaline up and your toes tapping and stuff like that, and you're probably not going to fall asleep listening. So here's Cupid Kills by Falling Blind.
And that was Cupid Kills by Falling Blind from back in 2010 off the album Comets, the group out of Seattle, Washington. Link, of course, will be in the show notes, and the rest of the album is actually pretty good, too. I had a hard time picking a song to choose for the show tonight, but that was the first track and uh, seemed to serve me well. So Cupid Kills, Falling Blind, check it out. All right, so now we're moving on to announcements and feedback. The first one is a comment on the Google Plus community from Rick Stoner, and it's in regards to LHS episode number 193, which was the last one. Uh, he quotes Bill, who said, JT65 is for people who like to watch paint dry. Uh, <laughs> he laughed out loud and said, it does seem like everything is happening in slow motion. I think it's interesting to see where my signal is heard for testing my antenna. Good episode. I like the interview about Arden, another item to add to my to-do list. Is using JT65 to figure out where his propagation is, he probably should just be using Whisper, because that's kind of what that's for. And uh, Cheryl put in here that there's a comment on Facebook from Kevin Murray, Kilo2 Fox November. So you can go ahead and read it. Okay, he just commented that he loved the vanity call sign that I picked out, and he wanted to know if I had used it yet. I have not used it yet. And for those who are wondering why the W5MOO, my kitchen is full of cows. I have this weird attraction to them. So that's that's how the moo came apart. It came about. And Grandpa so. used to have a cow uh, ranch. Yeah, and Grandpa and used to have a cow ranch. So <laughs> That's right. We have no more feedback and no announcements for the evening, so we move on to segment five, and that's food, Cheryl's Recipe Corner. Yummy. Yay. So, yeah. So, anyway, the recipe I picked this week is a great summer recipe when garden fresh tomatoes are basically taking over your gardens and the farmer's markets. This is a marinated tomato salad, a lot along the lines of uh, the caprese salad that you can find in Italian restaurants and stuff. You need some sliced tomatoes, some thinly sliced fresh mozzarella or mozzarella pearls, some fresh mushrooms sliced, vegetable oil, red wine vinegar or balsamic vinegar, that is your choice, garlic cloves, fresh parsley, and some salt. Uh, in a large dish, you layer the tomatoes, mozzarella, and mushrooms, and in the bowl, whisk together all the other ingredients, the vinegar, the oil, the salt, all that. Pour it over, cover and refrigerate for at least four hours, turning occasionally. Of course, you need to serve it with a slotted spoon because there's going to be a lot of juice involved. But I think it's a really good recipe, and I think Russ likes it. Of course. Of course. Pretty much like everything you make. Well, <laughs> So. Not everything, well, but most everything. Most everything. Yeah, yeah, you you have issues with beets. I don't know what you're doing. <coughs> beets are my disgusting. personal thing would be to replace the parsley with uh, with basil. We do that too That's occasionally. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I'm going to have some of my scotch. So let's Sweet. move on to that. And the one I'm doing tonight is Talisker Storm, which is an Isla Scotch, and this one is non-age statement. And I actually wrote down all of my notes beforehand, so I could just kind of you know chug on through this even though i do have a glass of it in front of me the alcohol content in this is a weird but interesting 45.8 percent which is 91.6 proof the color of it is a nice light rich caramel color with the tiniest hint of a reddish mahogany in there 
uh, if you look at it in the right light. Under my monitor, you can't see it, but in you know normal lighting conditions, you can. But what I got on the nose from this when I did it earlier was a, a nice brine, which is typical of the Isla Scotches, a smoke, a peat, uh, which, of course, you get. There's actually like a barbecue wood, smoke wood, like a hickory note. It's actually pretty prevalent. There's, of course, the typical Isla flavors like citrus and cream or vanilla. There's a light plantain or banana note to it, which is kind of nice. It's almost like the note you get from uh, like Novo Fogo, which is that Brazilian rum. So that's all very good. The taste is similar, but not exactly the same. Uh, you get the peat and the brine. You get that sort of Band-Aid note, the cream flavor, and the citrus and vanilla. There's also, mixed in with the briny, salty flavor, there's almost like a metallic flavor, and I don't want that to sound bad. A lot of the ways you describe scotch sound like terrible when you say that, like Band-Aid. Ooh, who wants to taste Band-Aid? But that's actually what you get, so sometimes you just have to deal with it. And at the very end of the the finish on the palate, you also get, like, multiple kinds of pepper. Not black pepper, but certainly like a red pepper and even a white pepper. I actually really, really enjoy this one, uh, as I enjoy most Isla Scotches. It's not quite as full-bodied and robust as things like Lafroig, but it's um, it's very, very good. Um, and I gave it a score of 91, and I did find that when we were looking for this originally, the, the bottles tended to be about 75 to $80 a bottle for 75 milliliter but i'm seeing a lot of places have come down considerably it's now in the mid 40s either it's falling out of favor or there's just a saturation in the market whatever but the price on this has come way down so if you like the character of an isla scotch i would definitely recommend talisker storm especially now that it's getting to be reasonably priced talisker (laughs) storm t-a-l-i-s-k-e-r Okay, and I heard earlier before we started the show that Bill had an interesting beer he was drinking. So what are you drinking? I am drinking a New Belgium Citradelic Tangerine IPA. It's a 6% by volume alcohol. It's bottled by New Belgium Brewing out of Fort Collins, Colorado and Asheville, North Carolina. It's quite tasty. It's not bitter at all. I don't see the IBU number on here. I can't tell you how the bitter units are, but... I can tell you it's it's very pleasant. It's nice, it's light, it's uh it's it's tasty. Yeah, it's not bad. Except it's an IPA and they all suck. This comes off different. It has a different uh the IBU units are the uh the important thing and I don't have it for this one, but yeah, it's it you you wouldn't know it was an IPA if you drank it. Oh, I beg to differ. You but... know, Bill doesn't <laughs> give you crap about your scotch, so No, he's he's welcome to give me crap about the scotch. <laughs> Just well, because he doesn't him crap about his beer. Just okay? because he doesn't doesn't mean I can't give him crap about his beer. So <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We have a reciprocal I can give you crap agreement. That's I just kind of I see. <laughs> yeah, it's bro code. Gotcha. <laughs> Whatever. All right. <laughs> so moving on, we are down to the social media roundup. So guess what? I've randomized the list again, so you're gonna have Great. to Yep, you're gonna have to read them all out of order. So <sighs> So, in the social media roundup for this week, in the subscriptions category, we have Scott Pettigrew, John Clark, Thor Wiegman, Robert Doherty, Jonas Rulo, Michael Aiello, Paul Griffith, Christopher Weaver, Michael Connolly, Donald Gover, Doug Rudder, Stephen Harp, Jeremy Hall, Charlie Brown, Alan Wilson, James Blocker, Dylan Engel, Robert, or excuse me, Ronald Ike. Bob Yerke, John Fotchke, Bill Stearns, Bill Piotr, Brian Smith, Michael Jacobs, Darren King, Edward Donnelly, Johnny Kinsey, Robert Halliday, Robert Pitts, Wayne Carpenter, Kevin Murray, Todd Bowers, and Stephen Saner. On Facebook, we have Doug Wilkerson, Robert Petrie, Shakti Das, Dennis Bauer, K.P. Murray, Michael Joseph, Tom Sales, Tom Foy, and Greg Wolf. On Google Plus, we have Cass Fitzgerald and Nathan Wrightcheck, KZ0GLA. On Twitter, we have at SLR Camera 2017, at K2ZA underscore John, at Inaction underscore figure, at KI7KLT, at T Sales, at Randy underscore WU2S. At Walrius Jason, 
at Case, or excuse me, at JC Smith and at Kelly Girl Green 3. On YouTube, Paula James joined us. And on the mailing list, Larry McGimsey. And there were no merchandise sales this week. All right. Very good. So that means we are down to the end. I see there is actually activity in the chat room. Uh, N7JCT says it's 50 IBU. Okay. That's, that makes sense. Yep. All right. There Not you go. very bitter. That's the international bitterness units? I believe that's basically what it means, yeah. <laughs> Isn't that how they rate anybody who's in the room with Donald Trump? How many uh-huh. IBUs? Uh-huh. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hey, speaking of Twitter followers, you know, we're still just under 1,000 Twitter followers for the LHS podcast. So go in there if you're on Twitter and follow at LHS podcast. Yeah, you definitely should do that. And I know we can do better because I think even you have more followers. Yeah, you're at 1402. Yep. And I'm at 1786. So if we can merge those all together and we can hit like 1,000, that'd be great. That would be great. I'd say if we do 1,000, I'll do a giveaway. Ooh. There you go. Yeah. So if we get to 1,000, I think that's what we did when we were looking for 500. So yeah. now that we're getting up towards a thousand, let's say let's get a thousand Twitter followers, and once we do, we'll do some kind of a giveaway. We'll give some hardware away, something worth actual money. So there you go. Let everyone know about the program. Go out there, talk about it, and uh, get them to sign up on Twitter. And as soon as we hit a thousand Twitter followers, we'll give something away, and we'll make it worth your while. So anyway, that's about it. Uh, people are talking about all kinds of stuff in the chat room, but we need to move on and give uh, some closure to the show. So I'm going to go ahead and push the outro button, I think. Oh, yeah, there it is. And I will say words like, you can become an LHS ambassador. Visit the website for upcoming events and information on how you can represent Linux in the ham shack at a nearby Linux con or ham fest. We love feedback. You can email us at info at lhspodcast.info, comment on an episode on the website, post on Google+, Facebook, or Twitter, or leave a voicemail at 1909-LHS-SHOW. That's 1909-547-7469. Visit our IRC channel, Octothorpe LHS Podcast, on Freenode, and subscribe to our mailing list. Show merchandise from coffee mugs to t-shirts to wall clocks and lots of other stuff can be purchased at www.cafepress.com stroke LHS podcast. You can also help the show by clicking on the sponsored ads in the right-hand column of the homepage. Listen to us live every other Monday night at 8 o'clock Central Time. That's early Tuesday morning at 0100 Zulu in the summer and 0200 Zulu in the winter. Our recording schedule and countdown timer to the next episode are on the website, and that website is lhspodcast.info for everything you ever wanted to know about the show. Thank you to all of our listeners, live and quasi-live, past, present, and future, and to those who have given their time, ears, shares, and money for the show. We appreciate each and every one of you, and it helps keep us going day to day. So with that, you have tuned into and are now listening to the outro for episode number 194 of Linux in the Ham Shack. I'm Russ, K5TUX. That's Cheryl, W5MOO. Good evening, everyone. And before he gets violated in West Virginia, it's Bill, NE4RD. <laughs> 73, everyone. <laughs> and we'll catch you in a couple weeks' time. Take care, everyone. to do this job, but it sure helps.